hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host. This week on the show, I'm speaking with Michael Moberly. Michael is an expert on Reno's bar and cocktail and restaurant scenes. He's been working in Reno's bar industry since he was 19 years old and is the go-to person for opening new bars, crafting menus, designing spaces, throwing events. We had a great conversation about what is happening in the world of Reno's bar and restaurant scene, the challenges of COVID, the future of Reno's bar scene, the challenges of hiring and maintaining staff in our current economy, all kinds of really interesting stuff around Reno's bar world. Before we head to the interview, quick reminder, as always, this is still a brand new podcast and I am still trying to let people know about it. So if you enjoy the episode, please spread the word, let people know that it exists. Also, if you have any feedback about guests or topics or things you'd like to hear on the podcast, I want to make sure that I am making a show that people want to hear. So shoot me an email. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. And now this week's guest, Michael Moberly. So welcome to the to the show. Welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the show. To start, I think the best way is to just learn a little bit about what you do right now and kind of how you got to be there. So you work in the bar industry. You are pretty much the the expert on Reno's bar scene, I would say. So... <laughs> I don't, I don't always like to say I'm, I'm the expert, but yeah, I can't be. Yeah, it depends on I'll, the day. I'll, I'll say it for you. So, uh, so what do you do as far as you do consulting? And you have a lot of different projects right now. Can you just kind of outline what you do for the, the Reno Bar community and, uh, and how you got there, where you started and kind of what your process was to end up where you are now? So currently, I am a creative consultant, I guess is the best way to put it. I specialize in beverage development events, creative direction, branding, like kind of a little bit of everything. Um, my, my company, Temple Builders, is a one-stop shop for brands, whether it be events or logistics or bar design. I mean, I can kind of do everything. I can train your staff. Um, I've been a spirits educator for the past eight or so years now. Um, so I teach about alcohol. That's kind of the, the difference between what I do in, a, in traditional bartending. But uh, part of that is because I've done kind of every job in a bar. I started when I was 19 and I've done everything from, you know, being a porter and like uh, cleaning up trash and dishes and all that fun stuff to doing what I do currently. Um, I've opened bars. I've, I've been lucky enough to design quite a few from the ground up. And I've also, you know, worked for brands. I built and uh, designed the Farino distillery the last couple of years. And then when that, when COVID hit, you know, I couldn't work for them any anymore just because my kind of salaried position no longer existed because the need wasn't there as national brand ambassador and creative director. Um, I was traveling a lot for that job and kind of selling wares all over the country. Uh, that really wasn't an option anymore. So I decided to kind of start my own thing and start being a gun for hire again, which I had done a little bit in the past. And so right now, you know, brands can approach me and say, hey, you know, we have money to spend in the market uh, in Reno and I can help them spend it. Or I pitch events like, hey, I want to do this thing and here's how you can support. Um, so there's lots of give and take and, and the goal being to kind of create more uh, immersive and, and enriching envi environments for drink consumption and, and education. So yeah, a, a little bit of everything. I also write for Edible Reno Tahoe. I've done that for the past four years. I'm the, uh, their drinks writer. I read a column called Drinks on You, which is available in every issue. From very, like I kind of theme it around whatever the issue is for the most part. And uh, yeah, I've been writing for them for quite a bit now. So Awesome. What is it about the 
bar and alcohol and spirits world that is appealing to you? Like what drew you to it? Is it, what makes it so special that you've kind of built your career and life around it? So my anecdote always for this is it, I, I was going to school to get my master's in fine arts and poetry and became a bartender. Like it was like the recession hit pretty hard and I needed a job quickly. And it was really appealing to me because I'm a social person. I have a little bit of an ego as well. I think most good bartenders have big egos because you're kind of on stage all the time. I did musical theater growing up. So for me, it was like very natural to want to be in front of people and I feel comfortable meeting new people and kind of controlling a room with the sound of my voice sort of thing. So for me, I think that was an easy transition. And then as I got better at it, I learned that a lot of the skills I had been curating my whole life, whether it be public speaking or event planning, or, you know, I I ran a punk venue in in the town I grew up in and like I, I through concerts all the time. So like a lot of the stuff I had been working on were all very valuable skills in the industry. I ran a bar called the biggest little city club for a number of years when I first started bartending. I mean, I was kind of where I got to cut my teeth and try stuff. And I got to see, okay, here's what happens when you throw a $1 champagne night, you know, every, all your friends almost die. Okay, cool. Don't do that. (laughs) Or like, here's how you throw a successful, like actual, like multi-venue, multi-act music kind of tour through town. You know, we, we did a few of those or theme nights or whatever it might be, or here's, here's how you create a successful monthly pop-up or a successful yearly pop-up. You know, I had a, quite a few events that we did every year that were very popular. So I was lucky to have a place where I could try things and get better at them. And then once I kind of hit the ceiling there, I realized that there was a much larger industry at play and I wanted to be a bigger part of that. And so I started traveling more and reaching out more and trying to learn as much as possible, taking certifications and pushing myself to get better. And then I also said, I want to learn working different bars. So I worked at like at a certain point in Reno, I was working at like four bars just so I could get as much experience behind different bars as possible. Um, doing an okay job at all of them, I guess. I'm, I'm Reno's okayest bartender. <laughs> Do you think that Reno has a particularly bar friendly history? Obviously it's a, you know, it's a tourist town and it's a gambling town. And bars have been a fundamental part of that since the beginning. How do you see Reno as a as a bar city? Has it always been that way? Has it intentionally made itself friendly to bars? What's the how does how's Reno compare to other cities as far as our bar life, bar culture and bar history? So I guess there's kind of two questions there, right? Like, where is the historical context and where are we currently? Yeah. And the historical context is, I mean, every like boom bust town had a successful bar in it. You know, it was a requirement. Um, Part of the reason why was that before people could drink water at a given location, they had to drink alcohol. So you knew you could ferment something and make it drinkable before you knew you could actually drink the water. From the earliest settlers coming to America, not really knowing what they could drink, they could make apple wine, they could make, you know, they knew how to ferment things and that they could drink that because the bacteria was good bacteria, not bad bacteria, right? Most of the time when you ferment things with natural water sources, the, the things that make you sick get eaten by the, the, the alcohol, so to speak. And so that that's kind of why every historically significant town has a history of bars in it. You know, like Boston has some of the best bars in the world. Really cool stuff. But they're old, old, old bars, like, like bar tops that like Lincoln sat at, right? And the West, you don't really have as much of that. But Reno being, a bit, you know, an old silver town and kind of being a you know, last stop before the desert, we were always somewhere that had a a significant amount of bars or entertainment. And over time, when the big divorce boom hit, you know, that was fueled, you know, fueled a lot of bar life, because a lot of people were moving here for opportunity in multiple ways. Um, And then when Tahoe kind of grew as a destination, you know, bar life grew in that way as well up there, and also needed like kind of people were still living here and working up there. 
So, I mean, over time, Marino's always had a, a robust bar scene. I think we live in the best age period for it. Like, we live in the golden age of bartending in general since about, you know, the early 2000s till now. We've, we've seen the past, like, 15, 18 years of some of the best bars that have ever existed in the world have existed during this time period. And Reno is not any different than that. We are, some people say we're late to the game on lots of stuff. I disagree when it comes to bar stuff. You know, I have friends who come out of town or brand reps who come to town and they're like, what is happening here? You know, we get to do more fun stuff than Vegas does because we have less corporate interests. We don't have any real restaurant groups here. So we have a lot more independent operators doing really cool and innovative stuff. Um, And it's also a scene that it rewards quality more than other scenes. So like there are places that have been around for 10 years, 15 years, and that's kind of unheard of in this industry. When you have a lot of trendy stuff happening and opening and closing, uh, Reno has a lot more of the first batch of craft bars, like nicer cocktail bars are still around, which is really unheard of. Uh, there's only like me, I can think of like maybe two that have closed since, since it, like they really popped off. So it, it's, it's cool to see. And it's also, you know, I've been grateful to be a part of it since the beginning and see it all kind of grow and get to grow with it. And my perspective on it, you know, I was just, just had a meeting with like a 21 year old, like new bartender, and she's so excited to be a part of it. And it's like, it still seems very foreign and abstract to her. And to me, I'm, I'm very grateful that I have this like perspective and seeing it from when, when all these bartenders who are now taken so seriously and revered, I'm like, oh yeah, those are just dorks. Like I know those guys there. Don't, don't listen to them. Do your own thing. <laughs> Do you think that there's a, a big impact from local support of these local bars? Or I know Reno is traditionally a, a tourist town, although we're you know diversifying away from the gaming industry. We still have a big tourist trade in Reno. How much of the development of the bar scene and these new venues. And like you said, the last 20 years or so has been this golden age of bars. How much of that is driven by tourists who are looking for those things in town? And how much is it our own locals that are opening these places and, and supporting them? Well, I can say at the beginning, it was hundred percent local. Like at the very beginning, it was just like, there were a handful of operators who traveled through the country or around the world. And were like, why can't we have good stuff here? And then made a f- f- like tooth and nail effort to create it here from scratch. You know, people like Duncan Mitchell and Ty Martin and Chris Costa and uh, you know Justin and Ryan from from Granite Street when they opened and, and you know like Imperial back in the day. Like there there were people who were taking significant risks to make something here, and it was being supported by locals. Like it, the, the at that time we didn't have you know a glossy easy to walk around Midtown. It was still like kind of sketchy mm-hmm. to live here people were like like in, in the midtown area i remember when i first moved to midtown my dad was like i can't believe you're gonna live there and now he lives like three blocks away from me so <laughs> and it, it, you know it was very much that at the beginning and now i see the, such a difference and it's it's a difference in you know i think campus life has opened up to midtown and like the areas where there's a lot more culture uh, i think that helps too but i on a weekend day I, nothing but california license plates in midtown or like areas with like great bars and lots of people from out of town you know i was i was having um, some wings at Brasserie yesterday. And there was like this cute couple from Texas who just came in and they had read about Brasserie and they wanted to check it out. So like, I mean, that that is happening more now than it was at the beginning. At the beginning it was very, I mean, and it still is a little bit cutthroat in like the communities, like this is ours. You know, we built this, we love these places. And there's a little bit of hesitancy to do it. Like, oh, all these tourists are going to take over our favorite spots. Mm-hmm. It's not really happening as much as people say it is. But there are, I mean, there's room for everyone as far as I'm concerned. So, 
Yeah. And I mean, it seems like from a business perspective, these bars would want to appeal to locals and have like this steady local base. But also a lot of that money is going to come from tourists who are coming and staying downtown and then they want to get away from the hotel they're staying at and see what else Reno has to offer. Right. And that's part of the appeal, I think, of Midtown and these surrounding downtown neighborhoods that they get people out of the casino bar and to see like the local actual craft cocktail bar, that kind of thing. Well, geographically, also Midtown operates like in between, you know, Pepper Mill and Atlantis and that side of town and then the downtown area. So it's like kind of right in the middle of that. So the casinos are a little bit more comfortable sending people down here than they are, say, like a casino next door um, mm-hmm. because they know they'll come back. But I mean, Reno also now has like the Jesse and the Renaissance and the, and the A-Loft and like hotels that are not specific to gaming. So that I think is a sign that the like boutique nature of Reno is being like that, that plant's being watered, you know, we're seeing it grow in a huge way. So I think that the, the growth of those industries those like more boutique industries versus the casino side of it is, is kind of proof when you go into the restaurants and the bars and in casinos, they're still operating as they were and not Mm -hmm. necessarily creating these kind of smaller, uh, more curated experiences. When you go to Vegas, like the cosmopolitan, for instance, which is like the only hotel I ever go to when I'm in Vegas, they've got a Momofuku and a milk bar and like a, a Hattie's hot chicken. And like, they've, they've taken all these great little places from around the country and put them all on like the same floor. So you don't feel like you're in Vegas. You feel like you're at these cool restaurants you've always wanted to go to, but you can't get to Nashville at the same time. You can get to New York at the same time. You know what I mean? Like They've done a really good job of keeping people in the room because of that. Where Reno, on the other hand, has been like, no, go to the river, go explore, go outside, go adventure place and come back to the casino and stay here because our rates are so good and we have, you know, gaming as well. So I think that there's the downtown partnership and like kind of all of the Corona properties, you know, the row in particular has been very open to being like, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in Reno. Come stay here and experience it all. Do you think they're missing out on something by not trying to create those experiences and those bars? They've tried. You know, we have a Cantor's now, which I love. So the Row is trying more than other casinos are in like kind of bringing in national stuff, like recognized stuff like that. But I don't think they're missing out. You know, at the end of the day, their bread and butter is tables and slots. And Mm -hmm. I think that no matter who comes to town, if they want to go mountain biking or they want to go to cool cocktail bars, if they want to gamble, they will go gamble. And that's really who they're after. So I grew up here, but then I moved away in like 2000 and didn't move back until a few years ago. So I missed all of the real growth in Reno's bar and entertainment scenes in general. Um, I guess I have two questions here. One is, is the age thing. So I think that prime bar going years are like 20s to mid 30s for most people. I think at some point, you just can't stay up that late. You can't drink that much. At least for me, it's like, I don't feel like I can live like the hardcore bar life at this stage in my life. So do you think that it's driven by by young people, creative people, like that kind of person that's moving to Reno right now? That's a big part of, I think, the appeal of Reno is we're trying to get these young people that is part of our, our appeal. Do you think that that has been a big part of the growing bar culture here? And then the other side of that is, coming back to Reno after being gone 15 years, it feels like it has sprawled and there's all this new suburban development, which doesn't have the same kind of craft cocktail, small bar curated experience. Basically those, those two different types of people that are moving to Reno, how have they affected the bar world here? And what are the, the challenges for creating those kind of experiences when a lot of people moving here are maybe moving out to, you know, some far flung suburb and they're not visiting Midtown. 
what are we doing for them? Or is there any interest from them in the improving bar world? There's a lot of questions. There are several. I know. I, I, I do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. So I guess, I, I mean, the real root of your question is, are the people coming to Reno helping the growth because they can't live in, in the immediate downtown midtown area, which historically has been the people who go out? How are they supporting it? First of all, there's like this this idea that like the hardcore bar scene is just like kind of make believe. Like there are people who will always there are bar people for sure who like go out and party and all that stuff. But there's also like everyone likes to go to a cocktail bar. Everyone likes to go have a drink with their friends. Everyone likes to go. Whether it's like you're saying like you can't stay out late and you don't want to drink like very much, you're still gonna go have like a happy hour, two beers, three beers, or whatever. Yeah. Um, or have a night where like on a Friday where you're just like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. I want to go and like have drinks tonight. Like that mentality is kind of universal no matter where you live. And I, I think that the people moving to Reno who are living in areas like, let's say, Spanish Springs, we're still getting them. They just, like, don't drink as much because they got to drive back or they Uber and they have to spend $60 to get home. My favorite, like, person is an example for this is my dad because he lived in Spanish Springs for a long time and then now lives in Midtown. And so he used to come to the bars all the time and was like, I want to be a part of this lifestyle. Like, I love this this feeling and this vibe. And it kind of forced his hand to move down here. And I think there's a little bit of that. There's people who just like, if they want to live down here, they will. But I also think that there's, I mean, we have some of the best liquor stores and like curated wine programs in the country. Whispering Vine and Craft alone have some of like the most sought after alcohol in the world. And so it's really easy to like stock a bar at your house in Reno. Like we, we have the expectation for like really good stuff. And so I think like if you want to stay home and throw a barbecue and do that stuff, you can do that. But I do think like, I mean, we see, I mean, I've, I, I spent four years running the program at Whispering Vine, which is Northern Nevada's oldest independent wine store. And I learned so much from the owner of Curtis who has owned the building. I think this is going into his 28th year in ownership or 26th year. And I learned so much from him in what this town actually wants and what sustainability looks like and how do you actually stay open for that long. And he's just had great priced quality stuff, reliably so, for 26 years. And that's really what this town loves. And when I was at the Vine, I saw people from, I mean, all the time, people from all over town would come in. I I ran the Spears program for all of them, so I would work at all of them. But I mean, We'd have people coming in from Spanish Springs to go eat at the Four Street Vine, or I'd have people at the Mayberry Vine coming to do whiskey flights with me because we're the only place that we're doing, you know, like the kind of whiskey flights we're doing at the time. So I think that if people want the goods, they'll come get them. And also, I mean, if you think about people moving here from out of town, a 10, 20 minute commute is not a big deal if you if you used to live in Vallejo right. and you want to drive into the bay. You know what I mean? Like, or if you live in Oakland and you want to go somewhere on a Friday night, you're going to drive, you're going to be stuck in traffic or like on the BART for at least a half hour. So mm-hmm. the like context of distance and time in Reno is like, you have your local people who are like, um, I'm not going to drive across town because it's five minute drive. You know, it's Reno. Nothing's more than 15 minutes apart. And then there's people from out of town who are like, this commute is nothing. Like I can just sneeze and get to Midtown from Spanish Springs where I, I had to drive to Spanish Springs this morning. It was grumpy the whole time. And it was like, I looked at the, the clock and the, the drive took me 16 minutes. And I was like, man, I really, I'm being a baby. I'm being a real big baby right now. So, I mean, it's people, I mean, they, the people moving to town don't see it the same way as the people who are from here who are just used to that being like everything being around the, around the corner, which it really truly is here around the corner. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we definitely have a different perspective of what traffic means and what a commute means compared to people that live in cities with actual traffic and actual commutes. Like Georgia is such a nightmare. Like the like like going to Atlanta, which is an, an amazing town, one of the coolest places I've ever been. To. I love that town. It like takes you at two p.m. on a Wednesday, forty five minutes to go uh, into another neighborhood. It's unbelievable how much traffic is in that town. And like it's like they know. Oh yeah. Yeah, you can't really bar hop or like there's like, yeah, there's I, I went there with the intention of going to like, oh, I want to go to this bar and I want to go to that bar and I want to like, I want to check these places out. And the person who was kind of getting be my guide was like, oh, yeah, we can do this this day and maybe that one. And I'm like, well, why? And they're like, oh, because it's going to take us two hours to drive across to that place. And I was like, oh, OK, mm-hmm. never mind. So they, we're, we're very lucky here. We talked a little bit the other day about the bar labor, like the economics of staffing a bar and being able to make a living working in a bar. So you've done it, but have things changed in recent years or is it possible still to make a career out of working in the bar industry as a, you know, like you did starting young as a bar back, whatever, and working in that world for a long period of time and having it be a stable career? What is the what does that look like right now? Well, it's the scariest time to own a bar. It's the scariest time to work in a bar. Like if you, if I had been the age I started working in bars during this time period in like the last two years, um, it would have scared me off for sure. There's no way I would have gone through with it. I got to, you know, start working in the bars during the recession when everyone was just spending their unemployment on alcohol. <laughs> like, like we were doing $1 drinks and the bar was full every night. Um, that we did that, you know, it was like, so I got a crash course in dive bar mentality in that context, but you know, it's a really, really hard time to work in the bar industry. We have people going back to bars and restaurants with the expectation that I'm here, serve me. I deserve all of your attention and all of your grace and all of your hospitality. And the wages aren't reflective of that kind of emotional labor of that kind of physical labor. Like, I mean, you tell anyone what an act, the actual labor of a busy night at a high volume cocktail bar looks like, and they probably don't want to work there. You're talking 10 hours on your feet, no breaks. You're talking 160 people talking to them. You're talking multiple tabs. Every time somebody wants a shot, they close their tab, like that kind of stuff. You're talking being berated emotionally like by people's expectations and then having to perform for them in order to make a living wage. So tipping is based on this idea that the service you're paying for already requires an additional fund for the person who brought it to you. So the, the actual service is a separate like cost of goods that is decided upon your hospitality or your grace, right? So if you are in a bad mood or you're you're hurt or you like anything is going on and that affects your just wanting to be around people, you're not going to make money. And if you tell anybody that, like that, that they couldn't come to work grumpy or have a bad day, they're not going to take that job. And the reality is the service industry is built on emotional labor that is so like reactionary and if you're so if you're making $9 an hour and your big nights you're going to make an additional 300 bucks cash, right? But it's not a big night because there was an event or it's raining or whatever, 
that affects your bottom line. So then Saturday, you got to hope, okay, hopefully I can make that money again so I can live. And because people got to take some time off and really focus on what they wanted, a lot of people are saying, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to know that. And so there are people who are owners and operators who are doing their best to try and get people back. There are smart people who are offering incentives like health insurance and profit sharing and 401k and tax help. It was like five years into bartending before I realized like how it was affecting my taxes by not declaring my tips. Right. And like how like, like, like essentially I was causing myself like a much larger tax bill in the future. Like no one ever told me that there's like financial institution stuff that owners and operators are helping with. That's in a very small section of bar owners and, and restaurant owners. It's very like, like just today, which I, the, the headline was like Chipotle causes ripples in the restaurant world by they're they're raising their minimum wage to $15 an hour. They are going to be able to hire a lot more people than the person who's charging or who's who's paying nine dollars an hour. The federal minimum wage is seven seventy five. Reno or Nevada's minimum wage is eight seventy five, and is said to, it's supposed to go up over time, like in like different increments. But that's still not enough to live in a town where rent for a one bedroom is averaging like twelve hundred to thirteen hundred dollars a month. You have to work more than forty hours a week to make that happen. So imagine you have all that stress and all that on you, and you're asked to perform for the actual living wage amount by being hospitable or kind to people who are actively not being kind to you. So it's definitely difficult to get people to work right now in that context. Like I, there's a give and a take with it. It's made for some people. It's not made for others. There are people who thrive in that environment. There are people who do not. And I think that we're just seeing people ask themselves, why am I doing this work? You know, I know a bartender who was bartending for 21 years who quit like last week and was just like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And was probably my, one of my personal favorite bartenders of all time. I don't blame him in the least, like not for mm-hmm. one second. And for me, for someone who loves this industry, who loves the people in it more, I, I love the people who bartend more than I like the booze behind the bar. And for the, and I care a great deal about the people creating these things because that's to me where where my energy is spent is in trying to empower and help them or create events for them or do what I can for them. It's hard to watch that happen. It's been happening. It's been a conversation that a lot of people in the industry, myself included, have been having for years that this was going to happen. It's just like when you tell people, hey, you can't work. We're going to pay you a reliable amount of money for six months, like a reliable amount of money, not like, oh, it's variable because it's raining outside for six months. And you let people take a breath instead of working six jobs to survive. Yeah, you know, that's going to change the industry. It's just fundamentally not going to work the same way, which I'm mm. simultaneously saddened about and happy about. Like, I'm happy that hopefully the industry will create more dynamic and empowering spaces, places that allow for active education on sexual assault prevention, places that provide health insurance benefits, vacation time. Like all these like basic labor things that people who work at like office jobs just take like they, they oh yeah I get that stuff that's like why I did this you know people are always like oh you're a bartender I know some people bartenders who went to college who would have the same degrees of people who just went and who who work in off office spaces who have those kind of like benefits and that's because they like the work you know they prefer to like the lifestyle of being you know working behind the bars there's a lot more freedom there but it also comes at a cost and that should never come at a cost of someone's like just basic living. 
And we're, hopefully we'll see more operators acknowledge that, create better environments for better staff and be able to retain that staff and they can grow together. Like the predatory nature of the service industry's ownership is hopefully coming to an end. Yeah. Is that what you think the root is of this? The treatment of employees as disposable and the accepting workplaces that are maybe hostile or unfriendly or, you know, untenable for long-term career being treated as just okay. You mentioned things like sexual harassment training. Like I think that there's this reputation in the bar and restaurant world of those being really potentially like uncomfortable, unsafe spaces for employees. Do you think the, what's the reason for that? Why has the bar and restaurant world been so vulnerable to that kind of treatment of employees and like you said, you want it to get better. Do you see it getting better? So part of it, there, there's, you know, this men, the, the mentality that the, the customer is always right is how you sell stuff, right? That's just truly how you sell things. If you tell somebody, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, whatever you would like, they're going to be happy and they're going to continue to come back. It's just that's the A, B, and C of it. That's not reality in any way, shape, or form. And when you have people who are trying to empower themselves for the first time, some people for the first time, or people who are just fed up with being treated less than, people whose pronouns aren't respected, people whose ethnic background is not like respected, people who are uh, ver- various genders or orientations or you know dispositions, having to like stuff it down just to make an extra five dollar tip. Like that is definitely part of the social change that I hope is happening systemically in our culture across the board. It's more reflective in an industry that requires hospitality. And, you know, that word is like such a buzzword and is so used inappropriately because to to me, hospitality is treating people like you want to be treated. You know, when you treat someone like they're coming into your house, I have expectations for the people in my home. I don't expect someone to come and take a shit on my floor, but you can go to a dive bar and take a shit on the floor like that. Those things don't add up. And there was a fine dining mentality and the concierge mentality of whatever you'd like, we will facilitate. You are the, the, you are here to be taken care of. That is my goal and pleasure in life is to take care of you. And like the, the honor and glory of service is a thing when it's reciprocated, right? When you are, when you are in a symbiotic relationship with that guest where they treat you like a person, they have expectations of you and you have expectations of them for so long, those expectations of your guests weren't allowed to be had, you know, like you couldn't say like, Oh, I don't want to be touched or talked to that way. Like don't mm-hmm. talk to me that way is a thing that it before could potentially get you fired in somewhere. Like don't touch me. <laughs> and then you have to hear about it from your manager. Like, Oh, that guest is a high roller and, you told them not to touch you. Like that's fucking unbelievable and mm. baffling. And for me, never been okay in any space that I'm in. And I've been in spaces where it has been okay and been vocal against it because I just don't tolerate that shit and never have. I was not raised that way. I'm not a person who treats people that way. And so I have expectations of the people of myself and the people around me. When someone comes to work for me, the expectation is that they li- they are in a safe place and my job is to make sure that they make money, they're paid on time, and they're in a safe place as well. Like they want them to feel like they're empowered in the workplace. And that's just like fundamental human stuff. That's not even like, 
this is not a new th- concept. It's just now, unfortunately, be catching up to the like white linen cloth version of that, which, you know, if you work at a five star restaurant with your ticket average, the amount of like you're spending a thousand dollars a meal. Yeah, you're making a lot more money. And the expectation is a lot different, but also you don't have people shitting on your floor in those locations, you know, where you can't, that's not translatable to every look, every place. Like it's a different clientele. It's a different expectation. And for so long it was like, Oh, cause you're here. Cause you are in a place where someone serves you. You get to treat them however you want to. And that happens every day. Like I guarantee you right now that's happening in thousands of places at this exact time that someone is feeling uncomfortable because someone is treating them poorly and they know that they may not make enough money to live because of it. Mm-hmm. which is a sad and terrible thing. Yeah. What do you think makes uh, a good bar? So you design these spaces, you design these programs, you help these bars. See, this is a happy question. I like this question. This is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's get away from all the negative stuff. What uh, what makes a bar good? Not just for the staff. Obviously, we want like safe spaces and staff to be comfortable and well yeah. and taken care of. Let's say that's all built into this, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. Assuming that we have a bar that is taking care of all of those things from the customer side. What do you think makes a good bar? What do you think about when you're helping a bar figure out what they want to be and how they want to work? What are the the elements of that? Okay, here, here's a big one for me. There's like Because there's lots of things, lots of reasons. Like there's a dive bar, there's high cocktail bars, there's concept bars, there's tropical bars. There's all, you know, there's all these versions. My first and f- my favorite thing to say when people ask me this question is, does it smell good? Does the bar, when you walk in, does it smell good? And if somebody's like, no, it smells like a bar, mm, start over. Like, like the first thing I, I like when people ask me to come tune their program up or they're like, Hey, you know, we want you to consult in our bar. We come take a look. Very first thing is why does it smell like a dirty mop? And you change your mop. Just go buy a new mop head. It's not expensive. Yeah. You have to buy a new mop head every month. If you're a a busy bar, no question, maybe even more than that, but who cares? Cause then your bar will smell better. And also like cleanliness matters in so many different ways. Like a clean bar is a representative of a larger like culture of attention to detail, which is what makes Mm -hmm. great spaces is like when you walk into a place and every detail is rich and wonderful and thought through and thoughtful. So to me, (laughs) the smell of a bar is a big deal. Like one of my favorite bars in the whole wide world um, is in Portland. It's called Expatriate. And it smells like a Bond villain would smell to me. Like it's hard to explain, (laughs) but it's like, it smells like cologne and like exotic spices. Like it's real. It's, I love it in there. And it's like, looks like a Bond villain. Like, it's just like, kind of like, it seems like a dive bar. Everything's red and has like, like arches and it's like wood and it's like, but it smells like sandalwood in there all the time. Like that, that's a full and rounded experience, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's what I want. I, I can make drinks at home and every person can make drinks at home. Just like open a bottle of Chardonnay, pour it, right? We go to bars to have experiences outside of ourselves and outside of our homes and with other people and to share ourselves and our experiences with other people. And so if you create an environment that feels good, that is comfortable, that feels kind of like baseline escapism, then it's successful. That's just like they go hand in hand. So like the very first thing, what makes a good bar is it should smell good for sure. (laughs) There's, you mentioned these different categories of bar. There's dive bars and like theme bars and all of these things. What goes into making those decisions about what's the right business model for a bar in the right place? Like, are there bar owners who specifically want to fill a niche of like, oh, this neighborhood does not have a good dive bar that is a cool, like comfortable place to hang out? Like, are the dive bars, it feels like they kind of just happen sometimes. How much thought goes into these different concepts? Are some of them way more curated than others? Is it always better to like heavily invest in the look and feel of what your bar is going to be if it is just like, I hate to say just, but like, quote, just a dive bar? Well, this is the stuff people pay me for. <laughs> these, these, <laughs> these questions here, right here, like 
why why I make the okay bucks. No, so the it, yes, a dive bar should inherently feel like it's always been there. Like that's just the, what makes a good dive bar, right? It just feels like it's never, it's always been there. You can make a dive bar, you can create one, but most of the time it just has to, comfort is the the key factor. You know, I asked, this, I've asked, this, this is like a common question is like, what makes a dive bar? And it's like, some people are like, it's a jukebox or it's a pool table, or it's like, they only serve high life. Or they like, there's like all these weird qualifiers for people's mentality. To me, it's like, can you go there best of times, worst of times, and feel comfortable, you know, and, you know, like comfort to me is part of being in a dive bar. I think dive is kind of a bad term, but I like it. You know, it's, it's like a comfort neighborhood bar, you know, is mm-hmm. part of that too. I, when it comes to like creating a concept from the ground up and what's needed and why it's definitely looking at what's already around you, looking at what's successful in that marketplace, seeing what specifically, like if there's holes in that market, Right. Like right now, Reno doesn't have a hi-fi bar. There's kind of a reason for that. I don't think people really want to sit in the booth and listen to like high end records right now. I think they will soon. But definitely, you know, I think there's people actively trying to open that concept. Um, You know, when it comes to tropical bars, you know, right now is we're in a really awesome time where people are doing their best to not appropriate Polynesian culture and fetishize people's culture by making exotic ingredients and things like that part of the fetishism of their culture uh, which i'm all about you know i'm i'm an avid collector of tiki stuff and have gotten rid of so much of my stuff that was uh, appropriative and not okay and i've learned a lot from the conversations that are being had currently and i'm grateful for that and i'm doing my best to do the work to understand more about those cultures that i have been in love with in one way or another in their style of cuisine and their style of uh, art and things like that. So I'm doing my best to be better about that. And having those conversations is part of it too. Like, what am I doing? And is it, am I creating something from scratch or am I taking it from something else? And if, am I, am I doing a new American Chinese food restaurant and fetishizing ingredients and making people feel like without giving respect to the ingredients and like putting citrus with matcha, which is like never a thing, or, you know, like there's lots of ways that people are not thinking through concepts or haven't historically that they are now currently doing more than ever, which I love, but that's also part of it is like, what do I want to create and how do I want to tell the story? How do I want to make people feel when they're in the building? For me, when we, when people create concepts, I think it's important to stay rigid to that concept. Like if you want to make a thing, stay towards that thing and stay steadfast and let the market learn about what you do. I learned that from Whispering Vine for sure. Like Curtis Warhol, the owner there is very like 25 years of owning the same location is not very heard of. And he definitely steadfast in what he does and has not changed what he does and is successful because of it. And then there's also times where you need to like clean things up and change it for a different demographic. So we opened the Midtown Whispering Vine, which I was happy to help design and and create as well. And that building feels so different than his other buildings because it's in a different neighborhood and services a different clientele. And every time I'm there, it's fucking busy as shit, which I love. You know what I mean? But we designed this like circular bar inside of a room with all light and like it's super bright in there and like really open. And all the other locations of Whispering were like dark and kind of heavy and like, you know, kind of old, old, like 90s feel. And so that, you know, that, that has because it's in a different neighborhood, it should feel different. It's a different product. Every location is a product. And so, you know, how are you creating a product people can believe in, can stand behind, can be excited to go to, can rely on. Like those are all questions we ask when creating stuff from the ground up. Got it. Last year obviously was super tough for the bar world with the pandemic, a lot of bars shut down. You were working through the pandemic on a lot of stuff like drinks to go and sanitizer and like oh, all yeah. of these different 
ways to uh, to pivot during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what last year looked like, both for you personally in your work and the bar scene in general in Reno? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very grateful that I had a job through the whole thing, or I made a job for myself in one way or another. Uh, you know, I opened my company last year, but I can say, you know, at Farino Distillery, we were we immediately pivoted to making sanitizer just because the the community needed it. Uh, we got some pushback on price and things like that. People were like, oh, it smells like tequila. And like, there's a lot of nitpicking of the product, which was really disheartening because we were just trying to do the best we could to get stuff in people's hands at a price where we could actually keep the lights on. It's a lot more expensive for a three-person operation to make sanitizer than a fucking billion-dollar company. People don't really get that. Mm-hmm. They're not the same product. It's a different thing. To-go stuff, I love. Like, I liked, I, I embrace the shit out of to-go stuff. I still make to-go stuff. I love it so much. It's so fun. I like vessels. I'm a weird, like, big, giant child. So, like, I want, like, juice boxes. And, like, I, I want, like, decoration. And so, for me, it's, like, just really fun to work inside of the box of to-go. So, for me, that was, that was easy and probably the most fulfilling part of it. I made 112 different labels and cocktails last year to go. So it was like, I got, I got buck wild for sure. Like I opened pop-ups and I did like, I was started feeding Bart. Like last year I sent, we gave out uh, 450 meals to bartenders with drinks and stuff um, through like events that I was doing and, you know, planning and stuff. So to try and give back, but I mean, it was the day before St. Patrick's day or two days before St. Patrick's day, we found out the bars were going to shut down and I didn't think I would react so emotionally. I truly like, I cried. I like, I didn't like, I felt this weird fight or flight feeling. I like, I was like pacing around my house because my wife was scared for me to leave and didn't want me to go. I mean, it was scary, you know, and she handled the the pandemic in a much different way than I did. And there was, you know, no judgment in our home. Everyone goes through things differently, but it was like losing a friend. It was like losing my best friend because bars are like, I grew up in bars and like, I I don't really, I mean, I, I don't drink at home. I really, I like very rarely do. I don't really I go out like maybe three nights a week. So I don't really drink that much. So it's not the drinking aspect of it. It's the community aspect of it. And knowing what was about to happen to all of these people I care about truly and the uncertainty of it, like I had a real intense emotional reaction to. I tried my best to be a guiding voice in town by putting out statements here and there and trying to rally people. You know, I helped a lot of people set their unemployment up and make sure they were taken care of that way. I helped employers kind of make sure their employees were set up properly. I said anyone who needs help with to go or creating programs or whatever it is, I was an open door. So I answered a lot of questions and, and helped as much as I could possibly, which was a, you know, a needle in a haystack. Like there was so much need there and there's so much, devastation there so much uncertainty but it's like we are a community that really has gotten through it in a, in a much better way than other communities have I'm very grateful we haven't lost a lot of places but it is shook the industry real hard like real shook that tree and some other shit came out of it and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing today with like not being able to hire people or whatever it might be but i'm I, you know the tree is hopefully going to grow back healthier or like the shaking some of that dirt loose made it will make new flowers grow. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, it was a hard year. It was definitely the the hardest year of the, for me for this in, in my career, no question asked. And I don't think there's anybody who can say otherwise I didn't slow down. So there were, there were, I mean, I was, I was working like six days a week, seven days a week, just cause I couldn't stop. We've, I fermented like almost like two tons of product to make sanitizer like f- fermented and distilled it with, with a, like a team of three people. And like, I was there all night sometimes and 
I did whatever it took to stay open and, and make it push through. So, I mean, like I didn't get to rest until uh, I don't even know. Like I, don't, I probably still haven't truly rested from all this stuff, but you know, it's, it's, I'm not the only one there. There are people who have just like, that's how people, some people deal with it. That's how I do. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm grateful. I have a partner in a, in a, with my wife who loves me and, and, and is there for me. And I'm, I hope that I could be there for people when they need it. And that's always the goal is to, you know, if we can't uh, find respite in the world, we can find respite with each other is always what we want. And so this industry is tight knit and I think we're tighter knit because of it. And I'm grateful to talk to new bartenders who want to still do the job. Like today was really, really cool. Good hearing that from someone, but yeah, it's, it's, we got through it and we're, we're hopefully on the other side of something. We don't, I don't know if it's the, the, the mountain we were over, but we're, we're on, there's a little hill or something. We're in a weird plateau or whatever we're at. It feels better than it did. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I'm optimistic that we may be primed for a really good year for a lot of these kind of businesses as people have been cooped up for an entire year. They're really missing the social aspect of going out and being with people. Hopefully as summer comes, as people get vaccinated, as the restrictions on bars and restaurants go away, there may be a lot of people who are really eager to get out and support these businesses and be with people. So that's my kind of optimistic take for 2021. Do you feel that might be a possibility that we're looking at maybe some some real growth maybe in the coming years as we bounce back? You know, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, people want to drink for sure. Like, they, like it's busy as shit out there. Like, I, mean, I, I can't, I, I live in Midtown, I can't find parking. You know, like, that's awesome. But it's also comes with its own challenges of like, how do you staff again? You know, we have massive product shortages with certain distributors. You know, like right now I can't get Jim Beam leaders to save my life. So there, there's weird, there's weird growth issues currently, like supply chain issues that are now like being caught up that we're seeing. And the inflation stuff is starting to affect the bottom line of bars. It will start to affect it in the next couple months. But I don't like saying it, like maybe it's not inflation or whatever they're calling it, like peaking or, or edging or whatever weird masturbatory, masturbatory word they're using for it. <laughs> um, but the... You know, yeah, you know, people were like, oh, it's going to be like the roaring 2021s. And, and that that was a cool idea. Uh, whether or not that's reality is, is yet to be seen. We really will not know the true impact of opening back up until what we called OND, October, November, December, which is when most bars make the most amount of money. So like that's really when drinking happens. And so I think it's going to be an insane OND. I'm like preparing for that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to my butt for it. I think the summer's gonna be a lot of fun. I think there's gonna be a lot of people just like getting together in general, but I think we won't really see the like blood, sweat, and tears that it'll take to to, to deal with the roaring 2021s until OND when people are more vaccinated. Like the CDC, as of you know today, said that you don't have to wear masks inside anymore if you're vaccinated, which is going to be its own set of enormous challenges with people having to decide if they're going to do that and how do you tell if someone's vaccinated and like there's just so much bullshit that goes along with that and like enforcing stuff is such a nightmare for bar owners mm-hmm. bar tenders bar owners like when people want to fight you like, like i ran into i ran into the owner whispering by the other day and he was like somebody threw a bottle at one like probably one of the sweetest people who work there two bottles technically one at the manager and one at this girl for for having to wear a mask like shit like that. It's like, what? So yeah, people are coming back, but those people are also coming back. <laughs> so like you have like sweet people who are so excited and so grateful and like, so like just want to know, like taste your drinks and know more about stuff and like be together. And then you have assholes who are like, I'm here. It's time to party and I get to do whatever I want. And so there's a, 
you know, there's there's a double-edged sword there. So I'm I'm like optimistic in the context of I hope O&D goes really well for people enough to make the money that they lost back or at least get back to normal in some way like that, which I think will happen for most people if they can hire people to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But I think that this summer is going to be a lot of like growth and a lot of growth and grace will be required to get through people getting back to it because people also forgot how to like interact with human beings totally or like how to tip poor rum sugar lime. Like I'm not trying to like call them out or anything, but they like one of their employees posted a picture of a $300 tab that somebody zero tipped them on. Mm. Like, and I'm like, okay, so, and I promise you this person probably was there for like several hours buying shots for people, like buying drinks, their drinks are, pricey but not like overtly like crazy pricey they're i mean they're they're of the value of what they are and so you're paying 13 bucks a cocktail 15 bucks a cocktail and at 300 that's quite a few so like nobody's sober in that scenario and that person decided not to tip anything that's bananas but also mm-hmm. i've seen a lot of that it's gonna be like I, I hope people learn to act right i hope people's moms start coming back out with them and shit like that to like make people <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, remember their manners. And I'm the manners police. Like, when I'm in a bar and somebody's treating the bartender wrong, I will say, you can say please. Like, I don't give, I'm, I'm confrontational like that. I don't give a shit. But it's only because those people are generally my friends and I don't want people talking to anyone like that, let alone the people I care about. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it, I, I think that we will, we'll, we will receive, see a return to, like, exciting, comfortable bar, like, outings in October, November, December, probably in September. But I think this summer is going to be, like, hot girl summer people forget how to handle their shit people have been drinking at home so their tolerance is super high but they haven't been drinking cocktails so they forget how to drink hard alcohol mm-hmm. like not everything is a white claw that's something you have to kind of describe like you've had four negronis you're fucking drunk like stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've been doing a lot of um events and pop-up stuff too can you talk a little bit about the the pop-up work that you're doing oh, yeah. and the to-go cocktails and these events you have coming up what's that part of your job and and what does that look like in the coming months Pop-ups and to-go stuff are probably my favorite, the favorite thing, my favorite thing I do. Like it's, it's, it's the thing I do for myself. It's the stuff that's a creative challenges. And, and I'm an events guy. Like I, I like an event like uh, tomorrow night, May 14th, we have the first of our summer series that I'm doing at public house with my favorite food truck and my favorite chef. It's a uncle buddy's food truck. And Marco is the name of the chef and, and Bobby over there as well. Like I love working with those guys. Their product is superior in so many ways to the restaurants in right now. And they're just so much fun to work with. They show up and they show up fucking hard with like killer shit. So we're doing hot dogs and highballs with Jim Beam. So a different Jim Beam highball and a different hot dog and then one classic and hot dog and one classic highball every every month with like swag and like fun stuff. And you get to keep the glass. And if you sign up on my Instagram at, at MC Moberly, you get to or, or my my business page at Temple Builders LLC. You get to um, the, I'll buy your the first 25 people who sign up, get free hot dogs, free booze. Um, so like there's. That stuff is so much fun. I also do a pop-up with Reno's best bartender, as far as I'm concerned. Her name is Anna Vetter. Um, she's a fucking stud. We've been friends for years, and this is our way. It was our first time working together is in doing these pop-ups we call Ready Made. And it's wonderful working with her and her creative energy, having a partner, and that is so much fun. And we do that at different locations with a full menu that only exists for that time period. And what's gone, it's gone. So it's like a true pop-up. Our next one is uh, the Splish splish, Splash Bash, which clearly if I can't say it, I should think about that name more, (laughs) Um, which is like going to be pool party themed. I can't tell you where it is yet, but I can say that it's July 24th. 
Um, so that one's going to be a lot of fun. And then we'll do one in October for Halloween. And then we will do our Christmas pop-up, which we did last year. Uh, and that will be over two weekends. Um, that'll be the longest one we do. And so that one is all to go focused and like package focused. So you can give gifts and take it to events. And we, we, we do it like two weeks before Christmas. So that like the two weeks leading to Christmas, so you can like give them as gifts and they're all shelf stable enough that you can put it in people's stocking things like that. So that's all fun. Truly. I love being the person people call who are like, Hey, we have this weird idea. Like we want to throw a party or we want to do this thing. And I'm like, yeah, let's figure out how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I like the let's, let's solve this problem. Let's do this thing. So for me, pop-ups and to go stuff is so much fun. Like that's, that's the way. And I'm a maniac. Like tomorrow I'll prep everything for highballs. Well, I'll probably tonight I will. Like everything will be done. So when I show up, everything's done. So I, I'm, I like, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm not necessarily a perfectionist. I just like to have all my events as prepped as possible so I can be present and not solving like all the fires at the same time. So when I do an event, everything's prepackaged or bottled or whatever, because then I get to see you and talk to you and I don't have to make the drink while I'm doing that. And I don't have to worry about running out of stuff. I like have a finite amount of it and here it is. So that's kind of the inspiration behind doing that stuff, which I like too. So. Right. I'm excited about the pool party one. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm getting weird. Let me tell you that. Like I've got a boba sealer that I bought. So we're going to be doing some boba cocktails. I've got like a soft serve machine. I've got multiple slushy machines coming. I've got, it's going to be a real blast. The drinks on like we do for ready-made are like, are definitely cause there's, it's normally just me coming up with concepts. When I get to have one, one other person do it, it like opens my mind up to, some crazier shit that's for sure awesome that'll be fun uh what else what else is going on in the bar and alcohol world that you want people to know about what didn't we cover truly i just if you're gonna go out be nice be kind um to each other and to the bars you know i i think that there's so many events coming like rodeo's back and art town's back and like, all these things are back and it please like plan your night you know, if you're going to go to do stuff, throw a bar in there and let's give some money back to these people. Like, like it's it's definitely time to go back. Just be respectful. And if a place makes if, if if a place has reservations, make reservations. That's another thing. Like look online and if they take reservations, make them because that makes everyone's life easier. It's my favorite thing that came out of COVID is that now in Reno, I can make reservations places, which I am a big av- I love that shit. Because one, I don't like to wait in line because I'm a, I'm a little baby back bitch. I hate waiting in line. <laughs> And two, I also like the reliability of like, I can pick, I want to sit outside. I want to sit at the bar. I like have these choices that I get to make. And the other cities, that was pretty normal for Reno. We we're bad at reservations, but now it's back. So make reservations if you can. And uh, yeah, and also stay up to date. Like if you have a favorite bartender, ask them what their Instagram handle is or something like that. Like how do you stay in contact? How do you, how do you find out more? Follow these bars you love on Instagram or whatever. So that way you can stay attuned to the stuff they're doing because everyone's doing stuff. Everyone's got events. Everyone's coming back. You know, Rum Sugar Line, Mark Sexton's back this weekend, I think. Brasserie, they're opening their top rooftop patio in the next week or so. The Record Street is doing stuff at their venue all the time, the, the one next door. The new menus, like all the restaurants I've gone to have been amazing. Everyone has new stuff. Everyone's like, several time, there's new cocktail menus. There's new food menus. There's new staff. There's, there's new life and all this stuff. So go but please be nice <laughs> and if you don't if you're not saying please and thank you and i'm around you're probably gonna hear from me <laughs> uh where where would you recommend people stay in the loop on what's going on all the stuff that you're talking about who how can people follow you and where else can people stay informed 
Um, I, I prefer people to follow me on Instagram. So MC Moberly is the my Instagram and also my Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find that way. You can also follow my company, Temple Builders, which I send out a newsletter every month. So if you want that, I can. there's a little link to sign up on my Instagram at Temple Builders LLC. Come to the events, come to Hot Dogs and Highballs and ask me what's up and I'll tell you. But unfortunately, there isn't like one curated location for information like what's happening in Reno tonight. Um, that's been a problem for quite a few years that that doesn't exist. But doesn't mean you can't like like when you go to these great bars, like ask your bartender, what's your Instagram handle? I'd love to follow and find out when you're working next because most of these bartenders are like, I'm slinging drinks tonight. And that's a good way to find out. I always recommend that. And then also it's like nice to give people love that way. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about bar stuff. It's been really interesting to learn about what's going on in Reno. And like I said, I'm optimistic about what's happening and it's cool to hear about all these pop-ups and I'm kind of excited about all the events that you got going on. So I'll definitely be at the pool party. Unfortunately, this is going to air after the first uh, hot dogs, highballs thing at public house, but is that a monthly event? Is that happening? It is. It is. Yeah. I, I the June, the June event is June. It's uh, June 18th. So Friday, June 18th is the next. Cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get some listeners out there on June 18th. I'll definitely be there for the first one tomorrow. And, and thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Michael. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Renoites. I always appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed the show. And special thanks to my guest, Michael Moberly. Please be sure to check out his upcoming events. Follow him on Instagram. He's doing all kinds of cool stuff this summer. So make sure that you are in the know. That's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.